Welcome to Science and Pictures Presents Science in Podcast. I am one of your hosts, Jared Adelman. Uh, Becca is out this week. Uh, instead, I will be talking with Madison Dix, a fellow nerd who likes to read scientific papers. Um, so, Madison, say hello to your adoring fans. Um, hello, adoring fans. <laughs> hello, people. Ready to get started? I am ready to get started. But before we get started, could you tell me um, why are we here? What are we going to do today? Oh, shoot. Yes, we are here uh, to essentially what we do in Science and Pictures and this podcast is read scientific papers that we personally find incredible and interpret them in a fun way so you really don't have to. Um, in reality, it's really not that difficult to interpret papers like these. You just need the time and a little bit of a background of how to interpret the language. But, you know, we're going to do a lot of it so you don't have to. Uh, in the spirit of that, Madison, would you like to go first or shall I? Uh, I would like it if you went first, uh, Derek, <laughs> so get a little more of an idea of how this podcast runs. So oh. new and exciting. But I am happy to hear that the purpose of the podcast is to read a scientific paper and explain it, because that is what I have prepared to do. So that's comforting. <laughs> Thank God. All right. <laughs> All righty. Um, let me just get my notes out. I'm so excited to hear what you found on the internet. Our theme this week is oceans, which is a huge, broad theme. So it could be anything. Would you like to just be the host? I forgot to say that as well. That's all right. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm a helper. Yeah. I like a helper than a host. <laughs> uh, Co-host in temporary, possibly again. Uh, so my article might be cheating a little bit, seeing as our topic is marine animals, uh, but it's actually about the only exclusively freshwater member of the pinnipeds, the eared seals, the true seals, and the walrus. Oh. Mm -hmm. Is it still alive? Uh, yes, very much. Oh my goodness, mm -hmm. I'm so excited to yeah, meet it. Tell I had more. no idea that these existed. Um, but the article is titled, Ultra-High Foraging Rates of Baikal Seals Make Tiny Endemic Arthropods Profitable in Lake Baikal. Um, huh. Or if this was published by a human instead of a robot, um, Baikal seals filter feed tiny arthropods individually as part of their diet, which is just how they do it is incredible. I'm just going to get into it. Uh, this was oh, wait, wait, they like sort mm -hmm. the arthropods, the little bugs that live in the water. It's that and more. Um, really, really cool. And how they found that I out was equally the amazing. Article, Lake seals sort bugs. Find out how. Lake seals sort bugs. Find out how. Yeah, it's got a good ring. To that me. would grab my attention. I do. I do like that. All um, right. <laughs> so this was published on December 8th uh, into Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences in the USA, which can also use a renaming. That's such a long name for an organization. But it's so good if you just say the acronym. Just say the acronym. <laughs> what is the acronym? Um, Proceedings of the National... Oh, God, P-N-A-S. <laughs> Major. God. Uh, actually, more on that later, coincidentally. But um, <laughs> yeah, fun little story. Uh, first up, though, the habitat. So Lake Baikal is located in Siberia. It's actually pretty much on the border of Russia and Mongolia. Um, and it is the largest and deepest lake on the planet. Uh, nearly 5,400 feet deep. That's over a mile. And filled with 5,666 cubic miles of water. That's... <laughs> Yep, that's enough water to cover the continental U.S. Uh, to over nine feet and have a bit left over. Just so I am offended <laughs> by this lake. I, you know, I grew up in Michigan and I thought we had the biggest lakes. So the Great Lakes altogether um, are comparable to Lake Baikal, but you know those are individual lakes. Oh my god! Lake Baikal also holds twenty percent of the world, upwards of twenty percent of the world's unfrozen freshwater. Jeez. Yeah. So you know, I did cheat a bit, but Lake Baikal is basically a freshwater sea. Wow. It's just so big. No wonder it has seals. Mm -hmm. But exactly. wait, it's between Russia and Mongolia. So that's like far from the ocean. Yes, it is very, very north. Um, Lake Baikal actually is a rift basin. Um, basically the earth split open over the course of 20 million years and just rivers fed a what eventually formed into a lake. Oh, and the seals got there through the rivers, yes. presumably. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. That question is answered. <laughs> Personally, I find it hard to imagine seeing how they move on land is basically just like belly flopping. <laughs> oh, it's great. Um, <laughs> but yes, so 
Lake Baikal is, like I said, also the oldest lake on the planet. It's had a lot of time for the life inside to evolve, and over 75% of Lake Baikal species are endemic. Uh, they aren't found naturally anywhere else. Uh, yeah, <laughs> that includes the fishes, uh, the Baikal seal, and uh, a lot of uh, little tiny crustaceans. You guys can't see my face right now, but <laughs> my jaw is like off the screen. Wow, that's, how did you I even- I didn't know about this lake. <laughs> Honestly, I didn't either. It's totally fascinating, isn't it? And the best part is the article isn't even about the lake. We have so much more to learn. <laughs> <laughs> I did go very into uh, the culture around Lake Baikal, which is super interesting, but I'll kind of weave that in later. Okay, um, sounds fun. So Baikal seals are the apex predator of Lake Baikal. They're the top level. Besides humans, nothing hunts them. Yes. Um, so th they sit at the very top of their food web. Uh, and that to me was very surprising, seeing as half the year they average around 110 pounds. So Lake Baikal seals are among the smallest in the entire seal family. Also, yeah, that's a little seal. Indeed. Um, it, when it hits the icy uh, season and they can get a lot more fishy food, they can get up to like, possibly up to like 280 pounds. But for a lot Same. of the year... <laughs> Exactly, yes. I see myself in these seals. Um, but also odd, Baikal seals are doing really well for themselves population-wise, which sucks that that's odd, but you know, that's kind of where we are right now. Um, up to four, uh, wow, up to four seals exist per square kilometer, while in wow. other species living in closed systems, like Caspian seals and ring seals, less than one is found per square kilometer. Um, in all of Lake Baikal, there's an up, estimated up to 115,000 seals total which is a lot for an area that size. Okay, four per kilometer. So I'm curious, some seals are social and some are not. Are these seals social? Are like those four getting together? It depends on their actual age and, and their sex. Um, adult female seals are very secretive. Uh, juvenile seals play with each other all the time and often are cu curious enough to get them stuck in fisher nets. Oh, yeah. no. <laughs> it happens a lot, uh, partly because there's a lot of them to go around. Um, but the question is, for these uh, scientists, this was done by a Dr. Yuki Watanabe. He uh, has a PhD from the University of Tokyo, and he specializes in research involving the energy uh, input and outputs of predators like penguins and seals. He's a really cool guy. Um, and the way that he figures this stuff out, which I'm about to get into, is just so cool. Um, cool. Give me a second to get my notes back up. Um, yeah, so why are these seals doing so comparatively well? It's not like Lake Baikal is free from, from human activity. Things like nearshore pollution have been happening for years, possibly decades, and there's actually evidence of human hunting of Lake Baikal seals dating back to at least 9,000 years ago. Yeah, I mean, Mongolia and Russia, that it's cold. Indeed, exactly. Um, yes, it's super cold, and seals are full of fat. Um, so, you know, why not hunt them? It's good for a human to be able to. It makes sense for that region. It does. Um, no one else uh, go hunt seals. Don't exactly. And I'll get into that later. Like the people of Lake Baikal are very spiritually um, connected to these seals and it's a really cool story, but yes. Awesome. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, so could the reason these seals are doing so much better be a difference in diet? Hint, hint, hint. It's um, the bugs. <laughs> it is the bugs. So Lake Baikal seals are historically, in a scientific sense, severely understudied. Uh, one article I read called them the least studied of any seal. Um, most of what we know about them is based on stomach contents and interviews with hunters. Uh, so Baikal seals were thought to feed primarily on sculpins, which are bony fishes. But in the stomach analyses, tiny little crustaceans called amphipods also turned up. Um, amphipods, okay. So correct me if I'm wrong, amphipods are the ones that look like fleas, right? Um, those are water fleas or daphnia. Amphipods look like tiny little shrimps. I have to look it up. <laughs> They're actually and kind of adorable. Amphipod. I hope you can hear me typing. <laughs> um, Long little antennae. Aha, yes. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, it does look a little bit flea-like to me. So, uh, in the overall shape of the body, but to describe it to our listeners, it's got four real long stringy things at the head where like a face should be, and then just like the back of a cocktail shrimp. That makes them sound horrifying, but sure. So small. So, so small. Okay, so continue. Small. So not scary. 
Um, so it's actually one specific amphipod species, Macrohectopus brannichii, which is actually one of 340 plus amphipod species, all endemic to Lake Baikal. So they are a huge amount of their endemic species. Now, when I hear hectopus, I think of an octopus with 10 arms. Do they have 10 arms? They're pro- Interesting. Um, I did not have the foresight to look that up, but going by the scientific name- Jared. I, I'm sorry. Can't look up everything. Uh, probably. That, that, that's a good question that I can't answer, but it's a good question. Okay. Um, so I these- I just another way of saying decapod, which like almost all crustaceans are, so. Interesting. Yes. Oh no, it's not. Hexa, deca. Oh no. Wait, isn't hecto seven? Hecto. No, no, no that's hepto. Hep. <laughs> what is it? <laughs> <laughs> this is so much Latin that I was just not prepared for. Um, but but um, puss <laughs> is Greek. Yes, Greek for foot. So it's got something yes. to do with their feet. Um, the problem is with crustaceans, they have walking legs, they have swimming legs, they have eating legs. So which legs they're talking Exactly. They're all <laughs> yeah. Yes. So which, which legs they're talking about, um, hard to know exactly. Yeah, what isn't a leg on an amphipod? Uh, the antennae and the eye stalks. But you could make an argument. That the eye stalks are also legs. Oh, anyway, God. completely, <laughs> tell me more about the 360 species of amphipod living in the lake and how they are sorted by our friend, the small seal. Um, so how they're sorted is actually part of the, every, pretty much every species of, of this amphipod has their own version of a vertical migration, uh, in a certain area of the lake at a certain time, the seals actually track them. Uh, Ooh, up and down. Yep. Which is completely unique in both birds and diving mammals we know of so far, uh, a little bit more on that later. So hmm. these amphipods are exceedingly small. They're less than a hundredth of a gram fully grown, 99 milligrams. Um, even oh, okay. for- Okay, wait, less than a hundredth of a gram. So if we were to put that in terms of like uh, sand or sesame seed, what are we talking about here? Several, like this wouldn't even register as weight in your hand. Okay, so like, could I see it? You could see it. Um, maybe if you need glasses, you probably couldn't see it. So like the gra a grain of sand type size we're yes, talking. They are incredibly okay. tiny. So the, the fact Super. that the seals can even see them is crazy because they lock their nose underwater because they can't inhale the air. Um, but yeah. yeah. I have a lot of questions, but I, I've i been interrupting you frequently. So no, no. I'm, I'm gonna... <laughs> <laughs> totally fine, totally fine. Um, right. But yeah, so even for the Baikal seal, these amphipods were thought to be way too small nutrition-wise to actually be important. So um, as animal behaviorists usually tend to do, they were basically written off as caught unintentionally or just kind of fell out of the belly of a digesting sculpin which were known to eat our, those amphipods. Just right off the invertebrates, fine. Mm -hmm. Never, like mind the, <laughs> Never mind the fact that fish bones are a lot more likely to survive digestion by the time they're analyzed. Um, so plus that, this assumption also ignores two other important bits of info. One, there are other seals known to feed on tiny crustaceans. And mm. two, the teeth of Baikal seals and these others happen to look very similar. Uh, so, Madison, do you happen to know these other seals I speak of? They include the true seals and the eared seals, the, the, the sea lions. Oh, they both, on mm -hmm. both sides of the aisle. Yep. What? Reaching across the aisle to eat tiny bugs. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, okay. I feel like maybe fur seals would eat krill? Fur seals, you said? Yeah. That's um, a guess. Unfortunately, no. Uh, on the no. sea lion side of things, we have the leopard seal, that huge one. Oh, Sometimes the... filter feeds krill. Are you serious? Yeah. <laughs> it's always the big ones. Mm -hmm. Wow. I, a leopard seal is one of very few animals that I would be scared to meet in the wild. Oh my God. Have you seen the picture of when like a scientist let it get super close to his camera and it just opened its mouth and you could see all the way inside? Uh-huh. I've seen that picture in my dreams so often. <laughs> They're so cool though. Their mouth, the way it opens, it they don't like have a snout. It's just like a watermelon and it opens. <laughs> you know what I mean? It has tons of teeth. Um, I'm, 
I apologize to any leopard seals that might be listening for that description. (laughs) 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 To them, it probably sounds like uh, what their noises sound to us. So I think you're safe. (laughs) Okay. All right. So leopard seals on the eared seal side. And that's it. Oh, that's it. Mm -hmm. I was confused. I thought there was one on each side. Oh, Oh, sorry. Yes, there's more on the true seal side. Oh, okay, okay. So these include the ringed seal, uh, the harp seal, and uh, unsurprisingly, the crab eater seal. The the crabby seal? Crab eater seal. Crab eater seal. Okay. They're probably crabby otherwise, because, you know. Um, So all of these animals' teeth, um, these are like the really cool seal pictures you see, but they look like their teeth are like pitchforks. They're like forcated in all these different ways. When they close their mouth, those form a sieve. So they can catch tiny crustaceans, and so they don't have to swallow the water. They push it back out before swallowing. They're basically How like bony baleen. How did that evolve? It evolved. So not only did it evolve in all of those animals I just mentioned, it evolved independently. It... Multiple times in the seal family tree. Once again, dear listeners, my jaw. <laughs> <laughs> it's on the ground. This is insane, right? Yeah, okay. Um, so perhaps the most absurd thing to me is that ringed seals, which I just mentioned as one of those filter feeders, and Baikal mm-hmm. seals, they're sister taxa. They're each other's closest living relatives. Still, um, even though this filter feeding mechanism has been known since 1990, it took this long, 30 years, uh, for Baikal seals to be suspected of the behavior by our Dr. Watanabe. So here's what he did. Um, to gather data, three wild seals... It's actually super easy to catch seals for studies because all you have to do is grab them while they're hauling out on land and resting because it takes Aww. a while for them to get back in the water. Just grab a seal. <laughs> for things. Yeah, Indeed. they're not very grateful on land. They're not. Luckily for Baikal seals, a lot of them are, because they're an apex predator, they're not generally too fearful of humans if they don't have much experience with them. So at least the seals weren't like too, too afraid. I hope not. Yeah. Um, they d- did behave naturally, though, as far as we can tell. Um, so these seals were equipped with seal-borne video cameras. Oh. Yeah. Three, three wild seals. Wait, 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 wait. You have to tell me, where did they put the video camera? Was it like a hat? Please tell me. <laughs> it was either, it was somewhere around the head head or, or neck region. They weren't completely clear. I have to imagine it was on their head. Just a camera hat? hmm They call that's it a seal-borne nice. camera, which is like, that's what I have to imagine they would think would you know, be the thing that people imagine. Because I did, and you did too. Yeah, I mean, how do they get them to keep it on? They don't have ears. <laughs> so I, that I wasn't mentioned? Such a hat to such an animal. The one thing I will say to that was that this was approved by multiple animal welfare organizations, so whatever they did, it didn't permanently injure the seals. Well, good. Yes. I don't know exactly what they did. They weren't clear, but at least whatever they did was approved by people who care about the well-being of seals. I wonder if it was like a video caller. Oh, maybe. I need to do a little digging into Dr. Watanabe and look at the uh, little things that he does. Yeah. Um, Because everything he does is just so cool. But um, yeah, so they analyzed the footage and uh, um, each seal recorded two hours of night diving behavior. These seals generally dive at night, uh, depending on the time of year. They also hunt during the day, but, you know, they just like to do things differently sometimes. Okay, yeah, sure. Me too. Indeed. So on an average dive, um, oh, by the way, I should mention, they targeted amphipods much more frequently than they did fish. Um, On an average Mm. dive, lasting around 10 minutes, no more than five fishes were hunted. Whereas, (laughs) and that was like the upper maximum, there was like an average of three fish. Um, but, 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 I just erased notes by accident. Oh, there we go. Um, an average of 78 and up to 154 amphipods were individually eaten per hunt. Um, individually eaten. Yes. These seals, and this was caught on footage, so, so they knew it was happening. These seals were hunting individual animals, estimated to weigh only 91 milligrams each. That's like hunting for a grain of salt. Uh-huh. It's just crazy. <laughs> And that's only the half of it. So along with the footage, they also got five other seals, and they equipped them all with accelerometers that are sensitive to speed, angle, and depth. Um, The accelerometers recorded an additional 556 hours of data that also overlapped with the video. So because of this, the scientists were able to pinpoint when the data represented hunting of specific prey items, amphipods or fishes. And also... 
it meant that the data could be interpreted as if it were video footage. And since the amphipods showed virtually no escape behavior, so pretty much every strike by a seal was um, successful, they could accurately- I mean, yeah, how do you get away from a seal when you're- <laughs> <laughs> Exactly. Looking good for you. They just kind of realized they're screwed, I suppose. Or maybe this is a new species that they're hunting because they're trying to exploit them. I was wondering about that, but couldn't figure it out. Um, so they could accurately estimate how many amphipods were eaten over these 556 hours just from looking at the data. Because from the the accelerometer? Yes. Um, it recorded. By the way, I don't know what an accelerometer looks like, so I'm actually picturing a propeller hat. <laughs> um, it basically looks like a tiny little torpedo or like a tiny black box. It's just a little piece of like cell phone-like data technology. I liked my version better, but fine. <laughs> We'll, we'll uh, keep that in your head, Cannon. Um, I will. <laughs> but yeah, that's this is insane. They're they had like specific signatures of when they were hunting amphipods, and they could use that to just gauge all of the hunts. One thousand and thirty-six individual hunts they could use this data on. Because they used a certain speed to catch the amphipods. Speed and pitch. They measured the angle of the seals, and they always had like a specific angle mm. and speed when they were zeroing in on an amphipod. Okay, and then wait. You mentioned earlier about the vertical migration and how they're following the vertical migration. Is that also data that they got from the, this propeller hat? Yes. So that was uh, based on previous studies on the actual amphipod species. Uh, other oh, okay. scientists tracked their their migrations, which directly overlapped with, with what the seals were doing and what their depth looked like. Makes sense. Cool. It's just smart seals. Oh, it's so crazy. Um, so they had a new average with all of the data. This was likely an underestimate uh, because there were a few events that they couldn't really tell what happened. Uh, but lowball estimate, an average of 57 individual amphipods were caught per hunt. That's 342 amphipods per hour and several thousand per active period. Huh. Converting this to mass, it's estimated that Baikal seals consume around 400 grams per active period or nearly a full pound of individual amphipods. Wow. Yeah. A pound. A pound. I'm trying to imagine like eating a pound of sesame seeds. <laughs> <laughs> Little shrimp flavored sesame seeds. That would not be bad. Yeah. Makes sense why they do it, right? Yeah. <laughs> so it's pretty clear at this point that these teeny tiny amphipods are pretty important to bicall seals. But mm -hmm. why? Wouldn't it be more in their interest to go eat something bigger? Well, why don't we ask baleen whales? Yeah, I mean, that does seem to be the trend. Like, if you're the biggest one in the place, you, you got to eat all of the little ones. Exactly. You skip the middleman because they have too many skills. <laughs> <laughs> it also plays into and like... <laughs> exactly. It also plays into like the unique uh, ecosystem of Lake Baikal, which is described as ultra oligotrophic. There's almost no nutrients, and the Are ecosystem is oligotrophic. Yes, like Illegal like oligarchy. No, like... say it again. <laughs> ultra oligotrophic, like like oligarchy. Ultra oligotrophic. Ultra oligotrophic. Yes. Okay. This means severely lacking in nutrients. Okay. Mm -hmm. So dominated by by, by plankton, uh, macroplankton in, in the Pacific, which are the ones that you can see without a microscope. Yeah. Um, it also plays into basic energy theory, which I found really cool as well. So uh, baleen whales include the largest animal known to have ever existed, which is the blue whale. But despite yes. this, they also prey on tiny crustaceans and fishes. This, cool. it, yeah, indeed. This is thought to be for at least two related reasons. Firstly, as you move up the rungs of a food web, uh, known as the trophic levels, energy is always lost as it travels from the producers to the many levels of consumers. Mm -hmm, that's why we fart and stuff. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Good old metabolism. Um, yep. So despite being generally very tiny, animals lower in the food web actually provide more energy gram per gram. Um, mm -hmm. Secondly, these lower food web species can often sustain very high populations in the right conditions. So if you can find enough of them in one space, you have an opportunity to meet your energetic needs very efficiently. And that's what this data suggests is happening in Baikal seals, um, at least during the ice-free months uh, when they were studied. And being, Love it. That is the same reason why after, 
you know, food becomes scarce due to climate change, you'll find me eating crickets. Oh, absolutely. You were telling mm -hmm. me about these, uh, there's like a lot of cricket cafes popping up in New York, right? There are. I went to one for my for my 23rd birthday. I had a, a cricket taco. It was delightful. That does sound delightful. It was. We can talk more about it later. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good. Uh, so to bring it all back together, uh, Baikal seals, the only exclusively freshwater pinniped, are the chunky apex predators of their ecosystem and absurdly successful compared to seals in similar habitats. A big reason for this may just be that they shoot very low in their food web by trailing swarms of amphipods and filter feed yep. on them, probably using their crazy sieve-like teeth. Amazing. Indeed. Oh, just round of applause for those seals. <laughs> they really know what they're doing up there. Oh, they sure do. Um, I want to move over so we can do your story, but I want okay. to share one more that I found very funny. Please. Uh, so some time ago, this was in another paper I read, uh, which interviewed a lot of seal hunters. Again, very deeply connected with the seals. They worship them. Um, they're believed to be a gift from what's called the master of the sea. It's all really cool. Uh, we can talk on it off air. But some time ago, a group of Russian tourists, by the way, Lake Baikal is dominated by the descendants of the Mongol Empire. So the Buryat people- <laughs> Indeed. Very much these people, though. Uh, they're called the Buryat people, which is their language and their culture. Um, Very cool. And those are also the hunters. So some time ago, a group of Russian tourists to Lake Baikal uh, from Moscow were walking the lake when a Baikal seal popped its head out of the water to look at them. The tourists reportedly fled in terror, calling what they saw a Buryat chort. Um, a chort... So Buryat is, is the local language. A chort is a small black demon-like entity in Russian folklore. A chort. A chort. Chort. It's <laughs> so the locals, like you, found this hilarious, and some have actually made a habit of warning tourists about the dangerous Buryat chort to dissuade them from going to the lake where they shouldn't. I would never be afraid of anything called a chort. <laughs> <laughs> One wonders why the oh, Russians man, would make something like that. I can't even say it without laughing. Why is it so funny? I don't know. Wouldn't chort. want to see one, though. Um, it even sounds like the root for chortle, which is a, a word that means laughter. Interesting. Maybe that's the sound they made. Seals do laugh. <laughs> I've heard it. It's a little creepy sometimes, <laughs> isn't it? It is. It is. Oh, one more thing. Um, okay. Russian hunters, uh, sorry, they're not Russian. They're the, the Buryat hunters. Older uh, generations had a tradition of taking the seal baculum, their penis bone, and fashioning smoking pipes out of them. Okay. Yeah, I think I I feel like that actually is respectful. It is. One of the other practices of the hunters is to take only what they need, and because the seals are a gift from the master of the sea, they have to distribute them to anyone else that wants it. Yes. Mm hmm Good. Yeah. That's I also find it hard to believe that they stopped. I think the hunters just didn't want to admit that they made the pipes themselves too. But, you know, at any rate. I think the whole that is very interesting and I want to learn more about it, but you're right. I have to talk about my thing at some point. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry for dragging on so long. No, you dragged on so long because I interrupted you, I think, every four words. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for good I, I, had, um, I had half a cup of coffee right before we started this and... Um... I've drank in three cups today, and that's probably why I talk so fast. Someone told me when I was still working at the aquarium that I sound like Ben Shapiro when I talk fast, and that just, he saw my soul drop, so I'm trying to prevent that. Uh, I, I don't think that's true. I, Thank God. You do talk very fast. You have the ability, well, I think I said to this, said this to you before, um, you can fit the most words in the least amount of time of anyone I know. <laughs> I'm flattered. Your diction. Thank you. Like, I can usually understand, when I can't understand you, it's usually not because you're speaking fast, it's because you're saying Latin. <laughs> <laughs> Macro and I get but... That's fair. Thank you. Let's hear your yeah. thing. All right, let's do my thing. So as we mentioned, we we're doing ocean animals. So I just went with one of my favorites, um, which is orcas. Okay. Yes, I am obsessed with orcas because they have such interesting social structure. Um, so the title of this article, also from PNAS, uh, <laughs> sorry. I'm from, so mature that I laugh at that every time I hear it. Proceedings of 
the National Academy of Sciences of the United States of America. Um, Post-reproductive killer whale grandmothers include the survival of their grand offspring. Oh, okay. So that's pretty straightforward as a title. It's not bad. But I would remove a couple words and just call it killer grandmothers. <laughs> killer grandmas. I would be much more likely to read your version, I think. And they're grandmas. But if you were like scrolling through penis and you saw an article that was just killer grandmas, would you not click it? No, it'd be very enticed, I think. Right? Mm -hmm. So if any scientist out there is looking for someone to retitle their papers, I'm here. Hit us up. Yep. <laughs> All right. So let's talk about these killer grandmas. Let's talk about these killer grandmas. Um, they are killer grandmas. Um, so the mystery that they are trying to sort of solve um, with this study is basically why it is advantageous for orcas to go through menopause. So menopause is something that women go through, as you may know, Jared. I, have, um, I know the concept. <laughs> yes. Many of us have seen our mothers, you know, go through hot flashes and get all mean and upset. Menopause, it's like well known for humans. Um, First question. Yes. Yeah. Um, do the symptoms of menopause, uh, the outward symptoms in humans show up in orcas? Or is it just like hormonal? I found no research for like the effect of menopause on the individual orcas. Okay. Um, I really wanted to know. I literally Googled do orcas have hot flashes. And I couldn't. <laughs> <laughs> no one studied it, I guess. I'm glad but you looked it up at least. Orcas are one of only a few animals on earth that have menopause, including humans. So it's humans, orcas. Can you guess what any of the others may be? Is it restricted to mammals? Yes. Mm, other dolphins? Uh, yes, some of the larger dolphins. Does it happen in like other toothed whales or maybe baleen whales too? Yep, yep, they're toothed whales. Mm, sperm whales? Nope. No. Porpoises? Nope. What other ones are there? Beaked whales? All right. What? Beaked whales? Nope. Damn. Mm. So, I give up. Do you want me to tell you? Yes. All right. So the other animals that go through menopause are short-finned pilot whales. Oh. Belugas. Okay. Narwhals. Makes sense. Humans and orcas. <laughs> I love that he are just like shoved in there between them. Just a bunch of toothed whales and then us for some reason. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so there's a big mystery even for us about why it's advantageous to stop reproductive activity and then have decades more life after that. Because it would make more sense to reproduce throughout your life if you want more offspring, a better chance of offspring survival in general. Um, so in humans, menopause is really well documented, um, even in early uh, hunting and gathering societies and current hunting and gathering societies. 75% um, of women who live to adulthood do not give birth after 45 years of age, and they continue to live on average to at least their mid-60s. So the 45 so, is like worldwide? Uh, that's that's the average I got from this article, which cited some studies. Um, 45, I guess, would be the average age of menopause <laughs> for humans. <laughs> and what about orcas? So for orcas, um, their menopause usually happens around age 35, 35. and orcas have been shown to live um, often into their 80s and even over 100 for females. <sighs> wow. Yeah. So that's a really long time living and not reproducing. What um, about um, the males? Is it like competition and hunting that makes them die earlier? Um, so males are reproductively active throughout their entire life. Um, the reason they die earlier is not in this article, and okay. I don't know for sure, but speculating based on what I did learn from this article and other research, it might be because they're kind of bad at hunting. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah. Um, so it's always female whales that lead the hunt, especially when food sources are uh, scarce. And um, in studying whether or not whales survive, like the, the likelihood of whales surviving based on whether or not they have a, a living mother, 
almost all males don't survive to adulthood if their mother dies because they cannot hunt for themselves. <laughs> Interesting. And their mother cares about them more than the other whales. <laughs> um, <laughs> literally in this article, um, they refer to them as middle-aged orca mama's boys. <laughs> oh, <laughs> they're poor pride. Oh, damn. I know. Thank God they don't speak orca. Um, yeah, I don't know for sure why they live less long. They're also larger than males. Um, they are more likely to be rejected from a pod, although that still doesn't happen very often. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're not, their mothers love them, but like other female orcas in the pod don't really associate with them. Males will actually, um, when they want to breed, they'll leave their own pod, find a near pod, and then come back. So they don't, they never interbreed um, within their family groupings. That's so really cool simple. that they like, they've evolved to know to do that. Oh, let me tell you oh God, about what whales have evolved to know how to do. First of all, they have the largest brain to body ratio of any animal. Uh, what, huh, what, wait, huh? Yeah. Largest brain to body ratio of any animal, Orcas. including humans. Wow. Okay. They have huge noggins. <laughs> and, <laughs> um, oh, I forgot to mention this earlier. So it's not all orcas that go through menopause either. It's only resident orcas, which really? is orcas fall into uh, three different ecotypes. Um, resident orcas are fish hunters. They usually stay near coastal areas. They stay in one relatively small area always. Do not migrate. Um, and there are transient type orcas, which have a much larger migratory range, and they feed on uh, seals. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> marine mammals. They feed on marine mammals and sometimes larger fish and sharks. Um, and the two and groups do not get are, along, right? What? The two groups do not get along, right? Like, they'll chase each other off, I think? Um. Yeah, kind of. I mean, no one really likes the transient orcas. <laughs> No, that's not true. People like them, but um, they are much more aggressive and show a lot less of the sort of sweeter social behaviors that the resident orcas do. Okay. Um, yeah, they're just a little more rough and tumble out there. Um, it's tough out and there then the there's ocean. ocean ecotype, which um, never really come close to shore. They're the ones that are least studied. We know the least about them, but we're pretty sure they mostly eat fish and sharks. And these are called what? The third one? Ocean type. Ocean type. Okay. Yes. That's the newest to be discovered. Okay. Um, Yeah. So it's only the resident orcas that go through menopause. It's also only the resident orcas that um, take such good care of their mama's boy's sons. (laughs) And um, so orcas, orca societies are structured around something called a matriline. Any idea what that means? matrilinear is mother related exactly so the offspring always stay with their mother Mm -hmm. um, whether they're male or female um so the males will go on little excursions to mate and then come back to their mother pod but they don't stay with their mate they come back to their mother okay um hence the mama's always yes (laughs) okay um and you can actually tell which whales are closely related in a mother-child relationship because they will swim so close to each other <laughs> always. In fact, they are rarely observed, almost never observed more than 100 meters apart in their entire lives. <laughs> oh my Isn't that God. crazy? <laughs> so it's kind of like the opposite of like a helicopter parent. It's a drone child? Yeah. Drone child. Um, and then different clans um, in resident type orcas. Um, clans are like a, a grouping of natural lines. I so love that be they're like called a clans. A few grandmothers, a handful of moms, a bunch of babies in a clan. Different clans have different dialects. Uh, that's so cool. Yeah. Um, and they've studied all of these different dialects um, of killer whales. And they've found some distinct groups that have no overlapping sounds whatsoever. Oh. So completely different languages. That's wild. Yeah. Um, but orcas that live in a certain region, so they, you know, pass each other every once in a while. Um, 
they have basically a common tongue. They'll revert to like a simpler common language of clicks and whistles when they're talking to an outsider. Are whales playing Dungeons and Dragons? Uh-huh, they are. <laughs> <laughs> That's so cool. Isn't it? It's oh fascinating. My God, yes. They're amazing. Um, the grandmother is also are responsible for passing on dialect um, play. They'll teach them different games. Uh, one of my favorites that was described um, is a game where you take a piece of kelp and you toss it at another whale, and that whale has to catch it right in the in the nook of their tail fin. Aww. If they don't catch it in the nook, it doesn't count. So it's kind of like basketball. That is amazing. Yeah. Orca that basketball. Cool? Yes, that's amazing. <laughs> yeah, and so you don't see the same games um, with different clans because grandma teaches them. Um, so grandma teaches them games. Grandma teaches them the language. Um, all orcas have the same baby talk, just like all humans have the same baby talk. They have a babble. Oh, um, bats do too, by the way, but keep going. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. There was a really new study about that. Every time I learn something about bats, I just love them more. <laughs> no. Oh, they're so fun. I would oh, love but to be Oh, we can't do that right now. We can't get off on bats right now because that would be a few more hours. <laughs> uh, Madison is the one who invited me to the Facebook page. It is bats, I think, where people just... It is bats. Yeah, yes. Great. It is great. <laughs> <laughs> okay, enough about bats. Um, back, to, back to, okay. Um, <laughs> oh, what was I saying? I got bats in the brain now. <laughs> oh, yeah, the mother also, grandmother. Excuse me. Oh, babble. Babies have babble. Yes. And so cool. um, let me find this quote. Um, Mothers have been recorded using exceptionally diverse sounds when commuting communicating with their offspring in contrast to sounds they use to communicate with adult members of the pod. This is termed baby talk. So basically when the babies are talking with each other and like the parents are doing the parent talk, it's like an episode of the peanuts. It's just like trombone noises. Yeah. That's <laughs> fantastic. It takes them about two years to learn the language, just like a human. Mm -hmm. um, and the grandmother and mother talk to the baby constantly during those two years. And it's just like human babies. The more you talk to them, the faster they learn. Um, so that's one of the things the grandmother helps with. If the baby has a living grandmother, that's twice the, the talk. And so that's learning how to communicate faster. So the grandmothers are just these like cultural sources of knowledge. Exactly. That's exactly so cool. right. And that's literally how they refer to them in this article. It's a source of cultural wisdom. Okay. Um, which is something you don't often hear from scientists talking about non-human animals. You probably don't. There is... Orcas, Sorry, go on. Orcas deserve it, man. Because uh, here's another thing. <laughs> <laughs> um, so the limbic system, the part of our brain that sort of regulates and controls our emotions, right? Okay. Yeah. They have one too. Most mammals do. Um, but underneath their limbic system, they have a completely new... No, it's not a lobe section okay. of the brain that we do not have. And it's linked so tightly with the limbic system. Um, most scientists theorize that it has something to do with emotions and processing of emotions and social connections, which means they have a capacity wow. for emotions and social connections that we do not. That's so cool. I would have thought that like any new brain section in an orca would be like tied to their echolocation, but... It's no, that's all the melon. Yeah, no. So cool. <laughs> oh, that's so cool. I know, right? Yes. <laughs> I know why you love workers. I already did, but no more now. Oh, God, I love them so much. <laughs> um, I dream about them, like, at least once a week. And, like, they'll just show up in, like, a swimming pool in my dream. Because <laughs> like, I'm just always thinking about them. Anyway. Just flop uh, like no, me. <laughs> um... <clears throat> okay, so I got off on a little bit of a tangent about how cool orcas are, but let's focus back in on the grandmothers. The killer grandmothers. So, um, in humans, a common theory for why we go through menopause, um, that is why we continue to live after not being able to produce babies anymore. Which is a pretty valuable thing. <laughs> Which, I mean... In humans, you know, there's a there's a bunch of reasons for it that we can point to. I mean, like, 
women aren't just for reproduction, obviously, but if you're looking at things from an evolutionary standpoint, mm -hmm. natural selection, what gets passed on in order to have a spe species survive, we're talking about mutual fitness, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. um, so that kind of reason. I'm not saying that this is the only reason for women to live when they're not reproductively capable. No, of course. <laughs> yes. Um, <laughs> women are great. All types of women. Yes. Even those who don't have menopause or anything. Okay. Anyway. In human, the evolutionary theory for why we have menopause is called the grandmother effect or the grandmother hypothesis. Oh, that's <laughs> which also is cute. charming. Yeah. Um, basically, that is that having a grandmother present um, increases, has been shown in many, many, many studies to increase the likelihood of um, grand offspring survival because the grandmother can help care for the children when the mother can't can care for the children so that the mother can have another child and care for the children if the mother and or father dies. There's a, a whole bunch of supports that grandmother provides that aid in the survival of the offspring. So in like survival family. skills, knowledge, social support all at one. Yes. And of course, passing on knowledge <laughs> that they need. Um, cool. Generational knowledge. Um, of things that the mother might not have experienced in her lifetime, but the grandmother did, which will become very important later. Um, so that theory has been very well tested in humans, pretty much proven. Grandmothers have the grandmother effect, very useful mm -hmm. humans, but it has never been tested in the other four species that have menopause. So the reason the study is cool it is the first study of the grandmother effect in a non-human species that has um, post-reproductively active females. <laughs> okay, cool. Yeah. Um, so the way that they did this is they took data from the Southern and Northern resident orca populations. Have you ever heard me talk about the Southern residents? Mm, no, but keep going. Okay, the southern residents are like my real housewives. They are a pod, a clan, sorry, of 50 orcas that live off the coast of Washington. And they're the best. <laughs> um, <laughs> and then the northern residents are close second. Um, the only reason they're less of the best is because I don't know all their names, because there's more of them. Okay. Um, the northern residents are up around British Columbia, but they overlap in territory and they interbreed. Um, they have parts basically. So the Southern and Northern resident orca populations are really, really well studied um, since the seventies um, because they're so close to shore and because of the interactions with the salmon industry on the Pacific coast of the U S and this Canada. is sockeye salmon, right? This is sockeye and Chinook salmon. Okay. Well, primarily sockeye and Chinook, but also there are five other salmon species in the Pacific. And then of course, in the Atlantic, there's just one, the Atlantic salmon. Gotcha. Yeah. But enough about salmon. <laughs> um, actually a little bit more about salmon. So I said resident <laughs> orcas. <laughs> um, resident orcas are the type of orca that eats fish primarily. So the Southern and Northern residents are extremely specific. They only eat salmon. Um, and so they live really close to the mouths of rivers where salmon spawn. And their whole life pattern is coordinated around following the migration of the salmon. And many of the First Nations people on that coast lived a very similar lifestyle. Salmon, you know, are a keystone species. Mm -hmm. They connect a lot of food webs, um, including humans, including bears, including wolves pretty much all of the cool animals up there <laughs> in the Pacific Northwest, which the we know charismatic is ones. Yeah. Um, and orcas are one of the most charismatic ones and also one of the most affected by salmon shortages. Their mortality rates go up super, super high in years where salmon is scarce okay. for obvious reasons. It's the only thing they eat and it gets very cold up there in the winter. So if they don't have enough fats, they're just not going to make it, especially the young ones. Cool. So, well, not cool, but interesting. No, but understood. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I knew what you meant. Uh, <laughs> Thank God. <laughs> so, basically, these whales, well, technically, they're the largest species of dolphin. These orcas <laughs> have been studied consistently, tracked on an individual 
to individual basis. They know all of them based on their markings from 1973 to 2016. Which markings does this refer to? Ooh, I was hoping you'd ask that. <laughs> um, one second. Let me let me scroll to the part of the article. Individuals were identified by their unique fit shapes, saddle patches, the presence of any nicks or scratches, and sect using distinctive pigmentation patterns around their genital slits, and in adults, differences in fin size. The males grow really, really tall, long fins, and the females are curved, usually. Interesting. And here's the best part. Genealogical relationships were inferred from long-term observations of social organization, including closeness. Mothers were identified by their repeated close association with their calves. <laughs> Which is what I was talking about earlier, how they're never, never apart. Um, so cute. Yeah. So the data for each individual was a year of birth, a year of death, an ID, and an idea of their mother. So and they track so these animals throughout their lives. Yes, they cool. did. Kind of like the Northern, uh, North Atlantic white whale catalog. Very similar. Mm -hmm. Almost the same. Um, yeah, so with these records, um, their sample size is 726 individuals. Wow, and okay. 4,578 whale years lived. <laughs> whale years. Uh, whale years. You know, like, they haven't been studying for 4,000 years, but collectively, that's how many years of life were lived by the group of whales. <laughs> gotcha. Does that make sense? Yeah, let's say, like, it's like a time measure of quantity. Yeah. So that's how they, how they did that. Um, <laughs> so they took all of that data and they sliced it up in a bunch of really interesting ways. Um, the main thing that they were measuring is the survival rates for grand offspring, of course. Mm -hmm. um, but they measured that um, between offspring with living and dead grandmothers, with reproductive versus post-reproductive grandmothers. But some of them did have grandmothers who were still reproducing, so all young grandmas in this crew. Um, <laughs> okay. Um, when salmon is abundant versus scarce, um, also sliced up um, basically how long it had been since the grandmother had died and they only used data when, the, from the, when a grandmother had died within two years of the calf living or dying. Um, all sorts of stuff like that. And then they also studied whether the post-reproductive grandmothers had an effect on the amount of time between their daughter's calves. Because one of their um, one of their theories was that having a grandmother would mean the mother, the grandmother's daughter, can have more calves in a shorter amount of time um, because the grandmother can assist with getting food for a young calf that has been weaned but has not yet learned how to hunt. That's amazing. Yeah. Um. <clears throat> the results, in short, in a standard salmon year, which is a year when salmon is not abundant but not scarce, um, the death of offspring um, with a the death rate of grand offspring with a dead grandmother was 4.5 times higher than for those um, with a living grandmother. 4.5 times. Oh high. my god! And. Um, so that's just a grandmother. And then in the post-reproductive grandmothers, so these are the ones who have already been through menopause, 6.7 times higher. <laughs> so that's a market increase. Like, if grandma's not fucking, <laughs> your odds are the best. <laughs> wow. I'll say that a different way, just in case we have to cut that. If grandma is no longer reproducing, grand offspring odds are the best. <laughs> oh, that's so cool. Yeah. And so they tried to theorize why that would be. Um, and they found some evidence that um, if grandmother was still reproducing, there was um, a high likelihood of conflict between mother and grandmother, which makes sense. I would be pretty upset if my mom was going after the same guy as me. <laughs> That'd be upsetting. Um, and also, so the survival rates of calves, um, an orca who already has a daughter who has a daughter. So the survival rates of calves born from grandmothers is lower than from mothers. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean by that distinction? Yeah, they have lower lifespans if they were born out of their grandmother. Yes, exactly. Um, so if the grandmother has a daughter that is already reproducing, 
that grandmother's own children have a lower likelihood of survival. Interesting. Yeah. Very interesting. Um, and then they found no significant effect on the interval between births of calves. That was pretty standard, no matter what. Mm-hmm. Um, but they did find that grandmothers in years of family scarcity became incredibly important. Basically, in years of salmon scarcity, only offspring with post-reproductive grandmothers survived. Wow. Yeah. That's and insane. they also, in a separate study that they cited in this one, tracked which individuals in each pod were leading the hunt, uh, leading where the orcas should go to catch salmon. Mm-hmm. And in years where salmon was abundant, um, usually there would be like a grandmother, a mother, maybe one male, maybe another female sort of in the lead. Um, but in years of salmon scarcity, it would be like only the grandmothers showing you where, because they have the memory of the last time salmon was scarce and where they could find it. So that's some pretty damn strong selection to like push these grandmothers yeah. to like such importance in the orca societies. Yes, and orca's wow. memories are incredible. In a study in human care, they are able to recall, um, I don't remember what, but 25 years later, <laughs> Jesus. A little stupid thing that got them fish one time, like in captivity. Human didn't give them a fish one day. Keep a grudge. You remember. That's um, insane. More than elephants. Well, speaking of elephants, fun thing. Um, the grandmother effect has also been studied in elephants. I've been thinking um, about that this whole time. Earlier, because elephants don't go through menopause. They, huh. No, yeah, they don't. So why? But it sounds like if they did, their babies would live longer. So interesting. I do know that elephants have a problem that orcas don't. Um, Basically an elephant dying of old age means that they stop regrowing their teeth and they just kind of die of starvation because they have a set number of- Orcas have a problem too, but not resident orcas. Specifically transient, or no, ocean type orcas, which are the ones who are most likely to feed on sharks. The reason they think that is because the older ones have like no teeth because of the shark's rough skin. Oh no. (laughs) Yeah. Damn. That is really fans, really, because they're really hard to study. We don't know where they go or why. Understandable. Orcas. Oh, another fact. Yes. Um, Speaking of orcas and sharks, so how much time? Um, two and a half minutes. (laughs) Okay. Um, (laughs) I can do it. So there was this study um, of a foraging site that overlaps between um, what are they called? transient orca population and a great white shark population that both typically frequent this foraging site where young elephant seals are there. Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> a breeding island, if you will, because that's what it is. <laughs> um, so the sharks are always observed there. Um, orcas only sometimes, because transient orcas are named transient for a reason. Um, about. So in one year of study, they noticed so it was right in the beginning of the season. The normal amount of great white sharks were there. Um, a pod of transient orcas visited the opposite side of the island where the sharks were observed for two and a half hours and then left. Great white sharks were not seen in that area for the rest of the season or the following season. <laughs> no, this does not mean that the orcas ate all of the great white sharks. In fact, that is disproven because their tags popped up a few seasons later. They were alive. They just smelled the orcas and were like, nope, just noped right out of there. So white sharks are not at the top of their food web. Orcas nope. are. Orcas are the top of every food web in the in the ocean. They're oh, in fact, wow. between humans, they are the most widely distributed species on earth. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Just wow. They are ocean people. These are mermaids. I don't even know what to which is black and white. Killer grandmas and survival grandmas all in one. Killer grandmas are actually mermaids. Maybe that's (laughs) (laughs) that's our new title corner. Yeah. Um, Um, There's a lot more in this that I could cover, but I know I'm out of time. So I'll leave it at orcas are incredibly cool and are helping us understand why eventually I will have severe hot flashes and yell at people. No reason. (laughs) (laughs) 
Well, thank you, of course, for coming on and sharing that incredible study. Um, wow, that was insane. Thank you. I appreciate that. Yours was really good, too. Also, I like that we picked um, two apex predators who, if they were in the same habitat, one would eat the other. <laughs> <laughs> to a very large extent as well, because the seals would have no idea what the orcas were. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's that's so cool. Um, yeah, we're probably going to tangent on orcas forever if I don't hit the uh, stop button. So uh, thank you for listening, everybody. And uh, we'll see you next week. Thanks, everyone. This has been Science and Podcast. Hi, Pod. Yeah, I should That's have said Jared. That. I'm Madison Dick. Okay, <laughs> bye. Thank you. Goodbye. <laughs>